0: September 2018 update of our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And
1: I'm Gary Anderson.
0: And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Well, Gary, our long um, wait for uh, new Star Trek episodes is almost over with a broadcast of the first of four mini episodes called Short Treks. Each of these 10 to 15 minute long stories will focus on three established Star Trek Discovery characters, as well as introduce us to a new crew member.
1: Yeah, the first one is entitled Runaway, and it'll begin the schedule, which starts premiering October 4th on Thursday, releasing the episodes. In fact, each one of the subsequent episodes is going to be released on the first Thursday in each month. Um, Runaway is written by Jenny Lumet and Alex Kirksman and is directed by Maja um, I'm going to butcher this name v- v- Um The description of the episode is as follows um, On board the USS Discovery Ensign encounters an unexpected visitor in need of help However, this unlikely pair may have more in common than meets the eye. So that sounds interesting. I mean, I like Tilly and she usually has pretty good episodes and this is a chance for her to have one focused exclusively on her.
0: Right, and then a month later on Thursday, November 8th you will be able to view Calypso which introduces a new Discovery crew member simply known as Craft. The character is portrayed by Aldous Hodge who's done quite a bit of television and film work, most notably in the movies Straight Out of Compton and Hidden Figures, as well as the television series Leverage and another one called Underground.
1: Yeah, he was really good on
0: Underground. For the Calypso episode, the teleplay is by Michael Chabon. Chabon. And the story by Sean Cochran and Michael Shaban. It's directed by... The plot is that after waking up in an unfamiliar sickbay, Kraft finds himself on board a deserted ship, and his only companion and hope for survival is an AI computer interface. So it almost sounds like 2001 Space Odyssey, to a certain extent. But, but hopefully, this um, computer will be uh, much more helpful.
1: Yeah. We don't have a whole lot of information about this character or the circumstances, but we understand that all of these episodes are supposed to have some kind of information revealing or impacting the story in season two. So next up is uh, on, debuting on Thursday, December 6th, is The Brightest Star. And that's written by uh, Star Trek Discovery writer Bo Yeon Kim and Erica Lippold. Um, it's directed by Douglas Aaron Noiske. The description goes as follows Before he was the first Kelpian to join Starfleet, Saru lived a simple life on his home planet of Kaminar with his father and sister. Young Saru, full of ingenuity and a level of curiosity uncommon amongst his people, yearns to find out what lies beyond his village, leading him on an unexpected path. Now, I would imagine this is also going to be an opportunity for us to see or at least get some sense of the predator species that's also on his planet. So that backstory is going to be interesting to to be
0: exposed to. Oh, definitely. So then the short story. Trek series ends with the episode, The Escape Artist, which will premiere on Thursday, January 3rd of next year. It's written by Michael McMahon and directed by Rain Wilson, who, as you know, portrays the character of Harry Mudd. So here's the plot. Harry Mudd is back to his old tricks of stealing and double-dealing, finds himself in a precarious position aboard a hostile ship, just in time to try out his latest con. So, um, Gary, uh, after reading the descriptions, which episode most intrigues you?
1: Well, I'm very, I'm pretty much in, intrigued by the Calypso because it's introducing us to a character, Craft, that we've never seen before. Uh, we have no idea who he is or what his, what his influence or importance is to the season. And um, the circumstances are kind of precarious, so there's a there's a sense of a great drama and a hopefully um, engaging um, character development. What about you?
0: Well, I'm definitely looking forward to all of these episodes. Yeah, but but but, but the one <laughs> I'm most anxious to see is Escape Artist. Uh, so I can watch the latest escapades of Harry Mudd. As you know. Yes, I am quite a fan of actor Rain Wilson's portrayal of this character. Uh, one of my favorite episodes of season one of Discovery was "Magic Makes the Sanest Man Go Mad," which featured Mud wreaking havoc on the crew. Mud is definitely a rogue you love to hate, so I can't see—I uh, can't wait to see what trickery he uses to extricate himself. From his latest predicament.
1: The other thing I think they got really well with his portrayal last season is um, the fact that they played both the menacing aspects of him as well as the comical aspects. Right. Which, if you watch the two episodes he's in, in the original series he displays both of those. The menacing episode is in muds women and the more, and the far more comical approach is, um, I mud. So, so anyway, I'm, I think that's, I think your, your choice is good. I'm, I'm more intrigued about the one. I don't, the character I don't know, although I am very interested in finding out about, um, uh, Saru's home planet.
0: Oh yeah,
1: definitely. So now let's turn our attention to season two of discovery. Um, where it should we we expect it's going to premiere soon, following these four digital short episodes being dropped um, month by month, probably either the end of January or the very beginning of February to keep the schedule going.
0: That we're um, going to see the season two of we'll Discovery. Right,
1: right, 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 right. Um, looking ahead, we thought we would spend a little time talking about several characters we anticipate seeing in season two, at least in the first few episodes, who were first introduced to us in the original series. Um, those are going to be Captain Pike, played by actor um, Jeffrey Hunter, uh, Spock, played by N- Leonard Nimoy, of course, and then um, First Officer, number one, originally performed by Major Barrett.
0: So, well, as many of our listeners know, Anson Mount has taken on the role as, as Captain Christopher Pike. Much of the information we will discuss on Pike has been taken from Gary's blog article, Who is Christopher Pike?
1: actor Jeffrey Hunter, and the character appeared in the unaired 1965 pilot entitled The Cage. Um, NBC didn't like it and asked for another pilot to be made and. And oddly, that's that was an odd action on that part. Uh, networks usually don't request a second pilot if they turn down the first. And but by the time they were looking at doing that, Hunter had declined portraying the role again. He really wasn't that hot on the on the show as it was, and he dec- he he bowed out. So that meant that the the episode never aired in its entirety. But huge excerpts were eventually used in archival footage and was incorporated in the two part episode the menagerie that played out in season one um, for the uh, original series episodes additional scenes were shot to p- portray an incapacitated pike who was at, performed by actor sean kenny
0: i want to go back a little bit to that comment you made about uh, jeffrey hunter and why he didn't come back um you know there's several different versions of why or what you know precipitated him finally saying that he wasn't going to come back. But um, the one that I'm going to choose to uh, believe <laughs> is, that, okay. uh, is, that, is that he um, was interested in returning to films. Uh, remember, still at this time, uh, for some actors, television was seen as the lesser form um, that if you are going to make it um, – and you, uh, if you're going to seem to be serious, then um, film was supposed to be the vehicle of choice. No,
1: that's true. I mean, there were some film actors who had transferred to television and had done it very well. You right. had, you know, Dick Powell. You had Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, Donna Reed, all, and Robert Young, all had done successfully well in television, just as they had done in in film, and it didn't stop them from doing films. Right. Um, those actors, but there were still some stigma for a number of film right. actors who fe- feared that their credibility, their talent, and also their money-making options right. would have been cut off to them by doing f- film, and I mean, by, from d- doing television. And I think Jeffrey Hunter was was weighing that against a desire to be stuck with a, uh, a TV series. That's
0: right. So, but getting back to this series... Um, uh, we're going to talk about the menagerie and um, how Pike functioned in that. Uh, uh, in that um, episode. Episode. So, in the menagerie part one, we're told by Commodore Jose Mendez, the starbase commander, that Captain Pike was injured during an inspection in inspection tour of a Class J training vessel. Unexpectedly, one of the baffle plates ruptured baiting everyone in de- deadly delta rays. Pike reportedly retrieved as many injured or unconscious trainings as possible. As such, Pike was exposed to massive amount of delta rays that severely disfigured him. When we finally meet him, he is introduced as a crippled fleet captain living out the remainder of his life on Star Base 11 under 24-7 medical observation. In addition, the incident stole Pike's ability to communicate verbally. His only mode of mobility is a computerized wheelchair that is cybernetically that cybernetically responds to responds to every command via brainwaves. He can answer questions as long as they require a yes or no answer by flashing a light on the front of his chair. It, it flashes once for yes and twice for no, so it's a, basically a binary system.
1: Yeah, which is kind of interesting, you know, given given the circumstances. But it's got no handles.
0: Right, right. It's, <laughs> it's got no it's, handle. People has no handles. People
1: just have to shove it. They got no handles. Right. So this experience that he goes through, where he's saving these injured or unconscious uh, trainees, is an example of Pike revealing an extremely heroic and selfless. Uh, Officer, you know, going in time after time to save these people, at risk to his own life, which I think is impressive, and also plays into who he is (laughs) as a as a a Starfleet captain and as a character in Starfleet. Um, This great compassion he shows uh, for these helpless trainees. Uh, is an example to the caliber of character. We see him display, even with Vena, the the trapped human female that he encounters on Talos IV. Therefore, empathy and a desire to protect the innocent are core elements of who he is. That's what we see throughout the the episode. We also hear indicated about him in this story.
0: Yeah, so um we're we're thinking that we're going to see that displayed in season 2. The we discussion. would
1: anticipate seeing that also in season 2, yeah.
0: So now let's look at some of the other attributes of Pike. It's been reported that Gene Roddenberry developed his model of of the Star Trek's captain from the fictional character of Horatio Hornblower. Hornblower was introduced in the 1937 novel The Happy Return called Beat to Quarters. In the U in the United States, the protagonist of the series of novels um, by C. S. Forster, um Hornblower is a Royal Navy officer serving during the Napoleonic Wars.
1: Trek fans have usually discussed the influence of Hornblower may have had on shaping the character of James T. Kirk. But I think that there is a greater benefit in looking at the commonalities between the heroic seafarer of Hornblower and Christopher Pike. Um, In the books, Hornblower is presented as this courageous, intelligent, and skilled seaman. Likewise, in the video transmissions beaming from Talos IV during Spock's court-martial, we are introduced to a younger Captain Pike helming the USS Enterprise. He is presented as an experienced Starch fleet officer, respected by his peers and crew members. Um, from what we've seen and heard, the description of Hornblower is easily reflected in both Pike and Kirk in that context. But on further inspection, we see that Hornblower is reported to be burdened by an intense reserved introspection and self-doubt. Despite numerous personal feats of extraordinary skill and cunning, he Throughout the books, he constantly belittles his own achievements by numerous, numerous rationalizations, remembering only his fears. Um, these particularly particular personality characteristics sound more inclined
0: or with alive. with
1: with what we see from Pike's behavior mm-hmm. um, than anything that James T. Kirk does anywhere in the series. Um, Again, in the menagerie part one, Pike is massaged into discussing his concerns with Dr. Boyce. Boyce comes to his quarters and basically encourages him to unburden himself about the things that he's feeling. You know, and Boyce, at at that time, Boyce is playing the chief medical officer of the enterprise. Pike is troubled by something. Pike confides in Boyce that he is fatigued at the weight of his responsibilities. Um, Supposedly, a recent away mission he led to Rigel Seven concluded with three dead crewmen and the injury of seven others. And he's blaming himself for all of that. Um, Pike debates even resigning his commission in order to pursue a a more completely different life. In exchange, he presents. He's presented as a man questioning his own actions, much in the same way Horatio Hornblower is described as doing in the novels. His this observation might give us an insight as to how Christopher Pike may behave in in a manner differently than we've seen from other ships' captains. This could be a major contrast to the alpha male behavior of somebody like a Mirror, Mirror Lorca or even a James T. Kirk that we've been exposed to. There is the possibility that Christopher Pike, we're going to be introduced to in this season, could reflect a personal style similar, more, to that of Benjamin Sisko, a more introspective Starfleet captain than we had seen prior to um, Deep Space Nine's premiere.
0: Yeah, I agree with that, definitely, and... Uh, because in that scene that he has with the medical officer, he definitely, you know, has uh, doubts. I mean, theres I don't re- recall another time that we've seen a starship uh, ship captain, whether in the series or in the movies, that says, I'm just going to retire. Right, You know, right, I've right. had it. Right. And uh, and that he really doubts his ability to leave.
1: Well, as as we've said before, we don't see Kirk display anything even near that kind no. of behavior unless, of course, we're talking about, you know, episodes when he's under the influence of some alien force right. or he's, you know, or when he's split in two. Right. Uh, and, and that's, but there has to be some external thing that's, a, that's making him think differently about right. what he's doing. Otherwise, if Kirk is out there, Kirk thinks that, He's making a decision that he's he's gonna he's moving forward with that decision right. The only other time we see Kirk do anything similar to this is in the first two movies, but that's an older man who has who based on the circumstances within the films, he has opportunity to question some things that that some decisions he makes because he sees. The ramifications of when he's okay, wrong. Okay,
0: but I disagree with you. I don't even think it's even similar there. He doesn't like the The, the problem is is that he's been promoted to a point where he feels that it, that that the talents that he has aren't being best used. He feels useless in that role, uh, whereas in the case of Pike, Pike, you know, he he does have talents as a leader. But now he's just doubting the fact whether he can go on because he does not like the consequences of what happens under, you know, what what could happen under his command, and that is the loss of life or the injury of others.
1: And in both Star Trek the Motion Picture and in The Wrath of Khan, Kirk does does have some moments of introspection that force him to think about the decisions that he's making some of which that have led to the death of others so yeah there's a similar it's not exactly what pike is going through but for him that's an opportunity where we've never seen him question his actions before right. and he's talking and and in the films he's also talking about being older
0: so. okay well now let's talk about pike's love life <laughs> <laughs> okay so pike appears to be a single man without a specific romantic interest in his life, as is in the case uh, in the Menagerie Part 2. Definitely, women are attracted to him. In the episodes besides Vina, we learn that both Number One and Pike's young yeoman find him appealing. Otherwise, we never hear that Pike was married or had a significant other at any time in his life. In fact, Pike's sense of loneliness is part of how the Talosians attempt to manipulate him. The illusions they create for him are designed to capitalize on a desire for Vena that began once he first saw her. This explains Pike's willingness to live out his life with Vena on Talos 4, even if it's just an imaginary life.
1: Also, we hear Pike very briefly um, discuss his earlier civilian life, which is all the information we have about what he did prior to joining Starfleet. In that conversation he names his hometown as Mojave, and we don't know where Mojave is per se, isn't on Earth or some other M class planet. We see a depiction of it when Pike experiences the second imaginary experience with with Vena in The Menagerie Part Two. Although it doesn't specifically um, specify a location. We can imagine that it, it could mean Mojave, California, a small Southern California town 50 miles east of Bakersfield, which makes sense.
0: I mean, right, right. So uh, in the Menagerie Part 2, Pike says he had uh, two horses back home in Mojave. One of the horses was named Tango, and it's seen as part of the previously mentioned illusion. We never hear what the other horse is named. This could indicate Pike's affinity with animals or other beasts of burden.
1: Now, naturally, um, the characterization, this characterization of Pike is also burdened by what we see as a sexist ideology of the time when the script was written. For instance... You, you can see this in his attitude about women in command positions, like with number one, Pike's first officer, is the only female staff member assigned to the bridge. There's no other men, women there.
0: Right.
1: Which is not the case on the Enterprise under Kirk, per se. I mean, there's usually, there, there have been female...
0: Well, Well, there's sometimes more than one, but usually right. there is... Only Uhura. well, Uhura is always yeah, there. Right, right. But right. there
1: usually is someone, and, and, no, and, and in not. in no. the in the the, the it, second pilot, there's Sally Kellerman,
0: who gets killed off. She,
1: well, she eventually gets killed, killed off, but, but, but she's on the bridge.
0: So so I I definitely disagree with this because I think throughout the original series. Every once in a while, there's another woman on the bridge besides Uhura, but for the most part, it's just Uhura. She's the only person, only female on the bridge. It really isn't until you get to the other series that you start to see, you know, more than one woman on the bridge regularly. Now, those were not, you know, they weren't regularly occurring characters, but- you know but but at least you did see other women you know on the bridge so so it took a while before they really you okay. know you know but that's a, that but but
1: that, but that is also a product of the time and the attitude mm-hmm. um, when Pike's young female yeoman shows up to he appears to be flustered and comments that he's not used to women here you know and, and it's it has only made an exception for his cerebral female uh, first officer, who seems to be asexual, right. to be honest with you.
0: Exactly. So, besides the lack of women, Pike's crew lacks diversity.
1: Absolutely. With
0: the exception of Spock and one Asian male, all the other crew members are white.
1: Additionally, when Pike speaks about resigning from Starfleet, he mentions that he may go into business as a on one of the Orion colonies. I mean, he tells Bo- Dr. Boyce, Um, who objects to the assumed action of trading women, which would involve selling native slave girls.
0: So we're going to assume that the latest version of Pike that's going to be featured on Star Trek Discovery will not carry these sexist and racial biases with him. So what about the portrayal of Spot?
1: Well, at the time of the first pilot, um, certainly Larry Nimoy had not fully developed his idea of the characterization of a half-Klingon, I mean, half-Vulcan, half-human, son of Sarek and Amanda, as we've come to know him. In fact, at, at this point, there's no evidence that he's even half-human,
0: um, Right. that right. he
1: could be all-Vulcan at this point. We right. didn't know about it. So you, what you see is you see the, a proto-version of Spock um, in the... In the pilot, at times he appears to be stiff, robotic, and robotic in his speech. But in contrast to other moments where he freely shows emotion, there's one point when they land on Talus Four, and they find these this this outcropping of, of 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 some foliage that makes a sound as it blows in the wind. And he and Pike touch their leaves, which stops them from making the sound, and he smiles at that. Mean Spock smiles. Spock doesn't smile <laughs> very often. Not
0: very often,
1: right? You know, so um, he. This just you know, this, the, he is loyal to Pike, yet with without voicing or showing any concern, he willingly attempts to leave him and two other crewmen behind when it, they believe that the ship may be in danger, which is atypical to what he it was would do.
0: Definitely atypical, Spock, because Spock. You know, it's really it's not into leaving, you know, other people. No, he's members, not into
1: leaving so. people.
0: So, yes, and that is so true. And in the menagerie, which occurred 13 years after the events of the first pilot, Spock, you know, the older Spock, is willing to face the death penalty and also risk the career of his friend and current captain, James Kirk, in order to bring Pike back to Talos 4, to live the remainder of his life under, under the illusion of good health and mobility. Obviously, there had to have been an event in the lives of Pike and Spock to form such a close bond that the Vulcan was willing to sacrifice his life for him. Perhaps this will be explored in the, in the Discovery episodes where Spock will be, be portrayed by Ethan Peck, Peck is a television and film actor and the grandson of legendary actor Gregory Peck, and as we heard, um, said um, at the Toronto at
1: the Fan Expo in,
0: in Toronto, yeah, uh, that this guy's I guess is easy on the eyes. So yeah. uh, they called him Hot Spot. Yeah, I so. guess
1: I guess he's easy on the eyes. Okay. Okay. All right, and finally, we want to talk about number one. The enigmatic Number One, uh, who, uh, as we previously mentioned, was played by Major Barrett. Um, on the pilot, Number One serves as Pike's first officer. However, when Pike puts together a landing party to go to Talos for, he leaves her behind to look after the ship, which is doesn't make sense. All right. Um this was a practice rarely followed on, the, on the original series, and subsequently on on Star Trek: Next Generation. It was a constant battle between Picard and Riker about who would go down. In fact, Riker said he should be going down since he is first officer.
0: Right.
1: Right. So they
0: shouldn't risk the captain. They shouldn't
1: risk the captain. Right. 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 Number one was prized for her intellect, which we continually hear about. We don't see much evidence of it, but we hear about it a great deal. And neither she nor the captain's female yeoman were attired in form-fitting mini mini dresses that we saw in the original series. Um, via telepathy, the Talosians reveal that she was attracted to Pike, but in the episode, she didn't act as if she had any. That she was actually Moved by this right. revelation, right. or in any way, shape, or form.
0: Right. So, um, upon watching this pilot again, I realized how much I truly enjoyed this role portrayed by Barrett much more than the original series Nurse Chapel, who I found to be annoying and unflattering, and flatteringly attired for her body type in a blue mini dress and boots. According to reports, management officials at NBC, that's, uh, that was Star Trek's television network, did not like the idea of the first officer being an intelligent woman. In fact, series creator Gene Roddenberry was given the choice to either let go of Spock or number one. Roddenberry obviously chose to get rid of the latter character and created a new, more traditional role for Barrett, with whom he had uh, been carrying on an affair during his marriage
1: um, yeah and the Star Trek Discovery's version will be played by the lovely Rebecca Romaine, who is one who is equally uh, tall in stature so she's going to have the same kind of height that Major Barrett had in the original series so that's going to be interesting and she's best known for playing Mystique in the X-Men film series um, before Jennifer Lawrence played her, began playing her and she had a reoccurring role on television's Ugly Betty, um, but like major Barrett, she's a she's about five eleven. She's taller than the average actress, and I'm sure that they are they are not paying her just to serve as eye candy. I mean, what I'm looking forward to is to see her portrayal and learning even much more about this character that that than what we've been afforded in the the pilot that was never shown in the really.
0: Well the pilot wasn't shown until. In its in
1: its entirety.
0: Okay. So uh uh I think the other thing I do want to say about number one that they did show was that she was extraordinarily brave. Uh so well, that's true. I, and so and, and this is where the intelligence comes in. yeah, uh, because it it was her that when the Telosians made it look like they had no choice that uh, the captain had to stay, remain on the planet, and breed with Vina. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was the one who decided i want to overload uh, the phaser. The phaser, and uh, because we're not going to accept this, right? And so she took a calculated chance that by doing so, that they would let them go because they were willing to destroy themselves. So, so she was actually the one who came up with that idea.
1: And that's true. That so, is the only aspect of her character in that entire pilot that she shows any kind of agency or shows any kind of um, craft or, into, you know, no, imagination in regards to how she could get out of those that situation.
0: Right. But, yeah, but she does. She gambles. She, she gambles. She gambles. She gambles
1: with everybody's life, basically.
0: Well, but it was the only way. Right. I get you. I way. get you. So, uh, finally, we want to remind you, that the Discovery cast will make an appearance during a panel uh, at the New York Comic Con from 4 to 5 p.m. Saturday, October 6. Those expected to appear include Doug Jones, Anthony Rapp, Mary Chieffel, Shahzad Latif, Mary Wiseman, Wilson Cruz, and Anson Mount, as well as Sonequa Martin-Green and Ethan Peck.
1: Yeah. So in closing, like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter at Star Trek AOD, Facebook, Facebook.com backslash Star Trek AOD. Our website, Star Trek AOD.net, where we offer additional articles on Star Trek Canon and interesting side-by issues and aspects about the show. Also email the show at star trek a o d at gmail.com.
0: So until then.
1: Live long and prosper.